So there's a rule that says you're not supposed to eat oysters in months that don't have the letter R in them. There's a rule that says you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day. There's also a rule, though you'll not be familiar with this one, that says that summer sermon series are supposed to end on Labor Day weekend so that the next Sunday you can start something new and fresh for the fall. But all those rules can be broken. This, uh, this sermon, which is part two, well, it's going to have a part three next week. Because I was smart enough to allow two weeks for Psalm 19, but I was not smart enough to plan on three. But that's what it's going to take. My original plan was to, to wrap this whole Finding God in the Middle series where we've been in the Psalms this summer. I was going to wrap it up and uh, start John's Gospel next week. But we'll start John's Gospel the week after next week. Um, because I struggled all week long to try to figure out how to cram everything that was left in Psalm 19 into one sermon. And um, I decided that you good people who came to worship on a three-day weekend didn't need to be punished with a super-duper long sermon. Uh, nor did I want to give short shrift to what is here, because it's some really, really good stuff. Um, so we'll go an extra week. Uh, so we're about to read the psalm again, and then I want to re- review briefly what we covered last week, uh, and then set the stage for what I'm attempting to cover this week. So stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May God bless the hearing and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. O Father, we need your help this morning. We long to appreciate and understand how you have revealed yourself to us, especially as you've done so in your word. So we thank you for that word. We thank you. It is is grace 
that you caused it to be written down, that you preserved it all these years, and that you speak to us through it even today. So help us. Holy Spirit, come and be our guide and our our helper, our teacher, that we might know our God and in knowing him, love him, and in loving him, serve him. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I gave you a basic outline of the psalm last week. We're in, we talked of the grace of God in revealing himself in the first place. That he would do that is, is pure grace. We looked at the first aspect of his revelation, that of being creation. This amazing and intricate and beautiful world he's made, it speaks to us. It reveals some of who God is and what he's like. Creation has a message for us. Theologians call that message in creation general revelation. And so it speaks to us, but it speaks to us in generalities. It tells us something of his greatness, of his power, the fact that he is creator, even of his creativity and his control. But there are some things that creation can't tell us. Creation can't tell us of our sinfulness, of our need for a savior. Creation tells us something of God's power as creator, but it can't tell us that that same powerful God took on flesh and became a man, that he might die for us and become the Savior, the Redeemer that we so desperately need. And so that brings us to the middle verses of our psalm that you see there in the outline. From general revelation to special revelation, the very words of God. See, we learn generalities from his works, from the world he created. We learn specifics from the actual words he has spoken. And that's where the psalmist is going in the second stanza of the psalm, beginning in verse 7. One of the commentators I read this week summed it up saying that, that creation, that general revelation shows us God's majesty, but that his words in his special revelation give us clarity. So I want us to first look at how these lines in verses 7 through 9 are structured. What we find are six sets of a noun, which I've got up there in blue, followed by an adjective in red, followed by a verb in whatever brownish-orange color that is. So a noun describing... A noun standing in for God's word, an adjective describing that noun, and a verb describing the effect of God's word. And so you can see them, maybe if we put them in columns a little bit more easily. There we go. There's much that we need to consider here in terms of God speaking to us with great clarity with actual words. And so to give us a little bit of structure so that you might follow where I'm going, I I just want to look first at the nouns and then at the adjectives and then at the verbs. And to make it even more simple and clear, I hope, 
I really just want to look at one of those nouns. We could scrutinize all the differences between those words, but I don't think that's necessarily the point as much as it, as it is to notice their cumulative effect. Because oftentimes in writing, and especially in poetry, writers will pile on words, one on top of another. Not to communicate a bunch of different things, but to really drive home one main thing. And so rather than trying to figure out, well, how is a precept different from a commandment? We ought to ask, what, what's the sum total here? What do all these words these nouns piled up, what do they add up to? And when it comes to God's special, specific revelation to us, his speaking actual words to us, what is the big picture? And so I want us to focus just on one of these, and it's the first one, it's law. We find in verse 7, and right off the bat we kind of need to quibble with that word choice of law might not be the best choice. The word there in Hebrew is one that many of you have probably heard before. It's Torah. Right? And so the English translations, almost all of them, choose law to translate Torah. But when you and I hear law, we're thinking some specific things right off the bat. We're thinking do's and don'ts. Maybe a list of regulations, maybe a list or maybe even two tablets of commandments. Right? That's where our minds go when we hear law. But Torah is much bigger than that. It's a pretty comprehensive word, which actually is a great word to represent all the words there in our list of, of those nouns. A Hebrew speaker would have heard Torah and would have thought about all that God has communicated. The, the total of everything that he has communicated and revealed. It's definitely not less than the Ten Commandments, but it is a whole lot more. It's commands, but it's also promises. It's also his character. It's, it's his desires. I mentioned last week the, the insight that I picked up from one of the commentators that the first part of the psalm with the general revelation part, the part about creation speaking to us, God's only mentioned one time, and when he is mentioned, it's with the most basic of Hebrew words for God. But in the rest of the psalm, the more specific, clarifying revelation of who God is, the psalmist uses God's personal name that has to do with his covenant relationship with his people which is Yahweh, which in our translations gets translated in all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. See, that, that he is a personal covenant-making and covenant-keeping God is communicated all throughout Torah. You can also note, see how these are highlighted in blue? Every single one of these nouns is followed by of the Lord, of, the, of Yahweh. These all belong to him. They're his. They're coming from him, and as such, it very much reveals what he's like. Because if his words are like this, then he is like this. And so law, in parentheses Torah, is a lot more than just 
the Ten Commandments. Some folks have suggested maybe that instruction might be a better translation. Um, But if we keep this in mind, that when we see the law of the Lord is perfect, right? if we keep in mind that that's a whole lot more than a bunch of do's and don'ts, that's going to help some of these other things in a minute make sense. All right? Um, I thought how Calvin summed this up was, was helpful when he was speaking of Torah here. Right? He says, he, the psalmist, not only means the rule of living righteously, or the Ten Commandments, but he also comprehends the covenant by which God had distinguished that people from the rest of the world, that is, his, his people, and the whole doctrine of Moses, the parts of which he afterwards enumerates under the terms testimonies, statutes, and other notes. All right, so that's it for the nouns. Just think about that one. Remember that it is, it is broad. It represents the totality of all that God has communicated about himself, about his covenant, faithfulness, his promises. Now let's look at these adjectives. All right. How is God's revelation? How are his words, and therefore he himself, how are they described? What are they like? What is he like? Well, you see there in the list. Perfect. Sure. Right. Pure. Clean. True. And so we could begin to look at them one by one and look at perfect and talk about its completeness, how it's not lacking anything, how it is without error. We could look at sure and and talk about certainty, talk about the fact that, that God and his word can be counted on. They will not lead you astray. Right? But I think the same thing can be said for the adjectives that I said about the nouns. I don't know that necessarily the point is to consider how they're all different from one another, but to consider, again, the sum total. What is going on here? And as I was going through these adjectives and kind of looking at them and and trying to meditate upon them this week, a similarity hit me, looking at all of these adjectives and thinking about the adjectives that I use each week after reading God's Word. Right? Four adjectives that I always say, and this is something that I just followed in the footsteps of our pastor in, in Birmingham, something he always did, and, and certainly many, many others uh, make similar declarations about the quality of God's Word after its public reading. But see, I don't say those four things. I don't use those four words necessarily to point out four different things about God's Word to you but to present before you and to remind you each week of the sum total. What is this thing that we're looking at? What is his word like? To tell you that it's inspired is to remind you that it's the very words of God. He's speaking. These are the words of the Lord. To tell you that it's inerrant, that it is free from error. Right? We'll come across things from time to time and say, oh gosh, is this, a, is this a contradiction in God's word? Ooh, it seems to say something different than it says over here. Right? We come across those things. And I assure you that when we do, the problem is, is here. It's not here. Our understanding might not have caught up with what God is doing here. 
But we believe that in their original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, they were given without error. They can be believed. They're infallible. They can be trusted. God's word will accomplish all that he intends it to do. It will not lead you astray. It won't return void. As Steve prayed earlier in his prayer. His word goes out. It's powerful. It's going to accomplish exactly what God wants to every single time. And to tell you that that it's authoritative speaks of our response to it. Our obedience. Because he's the one who said it. And because of his nature and because of who he is as creator and we are the creatures, we must obey. Our, Our obedience, our submission to what he says is required. And so there's lots of overlap with those four. There's lots of overlap with our list of adjectives in Psalm 19. And it's the sum total that matters. When God speaks with such specificity as he has in his words, y'all, it matters. It can be trusted. It must be obeyed. Now for these verbs. What do the words of God do for us? What is their effect? And I want to look at a few of these. Look at the first one in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now again, if, if we're hearing law and we're thinking do's and don'ts, it would be easy to look at that verse and say, huh? God's law revives my soul? No, the law condemns. Right? Even that very first law given in the garden. Right? Came with the consequence of death attached to it. That doesn't sound very reviving. But that's where remembering that Torah includes everything that God has said. Commands and promises, curses and blessings. But here we ought to press into it just a little bit more. To learn something critically important about God's word. To say that it revives the soul. Might lead you to think in terms of, oh, it is so refreshing, right? I open up the scriptures and they refresh me. Or I open up the scriptures and they encourage me. Right? But those are not appropriate synonyms for what's going on here. What the word does here is actual reviving, akin to resuscitating. Right? Think CPR, think the little paddles that they rub together and right? That's what's going on here, bringing back from the dead. And so here's a rarity for me at least. I actually prefer what the King James does. Because I think it gets a lot closer. It says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Right? So it's, it's not refreshing. It's not encouraging. It's, it's the new birth. Right? The law of the Lord is perfect, causing the soul to be born again, reviving it, resuscitating it. We looked many months ago, maybe even, I don't even know how long ago, we looked at what it meant to be born again. What's involved in that process? How the Spirit's at work in that? But have you thought in detail about how the Spirit actually goes about that? What does the Spirit use to cause the new birth? Is it just magical power? 
He says, be born again. He could, but he doesn't. He uses something. He causes us to be born again through the word of God. We looked last week at Romans 10, 17, talking about faith coming from hearing the message. And that message is the word of Christ. Well, Peter also got at this, explaining what's going on in the new birth in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, 23. He's talking to them and he's giving them some commands and he's giving them the reason. And the reason is, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And this ought to affect our approach to God's word. We don't approach God's word simply as, well, here's some information for me to process and digest and perhaps memorize. It's not just information, it's living, it's active power that changes and transforms our lives, that in fact gives us our very lives back from the dead. Now, this is what is so special about special revelation. Now, looking at creation is wonderful, right? Several of our folks, they're not here this morning, they're enjoying creation, be at the beach or the mountains or, or whatever, and it's wonderful, Okay? But creation and taking it in and listening for its message will never give anyone new life. Look at the second half of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now the thing that really struck me here is not that his word makes us wise. The thing that struck me is, who does it make wise? There's a humility required. If you're going to benefit from all that God's word is and all that it has to offer, you've got to be simple. And this is related to that last one. It's not just information. See, if we approach God's word thinking, and I've read this a bunch of times, I know what's here. Right? There, I don't need to go to Sunday school. Right? I, I got all that. Right? You might know the information of the Bible. if you think you've got it all figured out, then God's word has nothing for you. But if you can humbly approach God's word with the, with the approach and the mindset of his ways are higher than my ways. Who can begin to understand It takes the humility that James mentions in in James chapter 1 to admit that we lack and that we need wisdom, then, oh, buddy, it's there for you. Right? But but it's that 
acknowledging that you're simple, acknowledging that you're in need, that, that opens that door. Let me end by looking at one last verb in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. How does that work? Do you usually think about God's law, his instruction, his precepts, his prescribed way for you and me to live? Do you think of that as something that causes your heart to rejoice? To well up and overflow with joy? I don't naturally think about God's instruction and precepts that way. And I'm pretty sure that you don't either, naturally. But it is possible, and it's possible on two levels. The first is this. To look at God's law, his instruction, his precepts, and love them and rejoice over them is not a natural response. It's a supernatural response. It's a response that comes after the Holy Spirit has used God's word to revive your soul, to cause you to be born again. It's possible to look at God's law and instruction and precepts and rejoice and love them because part of the being born again process, and we've looked at this many times and I guess we're going to look at it many, many more. Jeremiah 31. Speaking of the new covenant, um, foretelling, foreshadowing of the new birth, Jeremiah says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it not on their minds, but on their hearts. Our eyes and our hearts are opened in the new birth to behold and to believe that all of these adjectives about God's word are true, that his ways really are for our good, that he's motivated not by his desire to be a killjoy and keep us from having any fun, but by his love for us, by his deep desire, his longing for our good and flourishing. Right? So that's the first level. It is possible to rejoice at God's law, instruction, precepts because being born again allows us supernaturally to love God's ways. Now the other level, to look at God's precepts and for our hearts to rejoice is to know that even though we do now have the capability, the capacity to love them and to rejoice over them, we still fail miserably at actually doing it. Now, wait a minute. I thought this was a reason to rejoice. Well, it is. Right? Routinely falling flat on our faces, knowing his ways are best, therefore are good, but still being tempted to and succumbing to the temptation all the time not to follow what he said and to do what we want instead. Now, the reason that even that can cause us to rejoice 
is that our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, perfectly lived by every single one of those precepts. He perfectly obeyed every command. Every jot and tittle of the law was flawlessly fulfilled by him in our place. And if your faith is in Jesus this morning, you have a perfect, you have a flawless record. You got all A pluses, perfect attendance, even good conduct and citizenship and whatever the other categories are, all perfect. Because our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, took our ugly record. Took our truthful and accurate record of all of our failings. And he suffered and he was punished for our record. For our unrighteousness. For our rebellion. Absorbing God's wrath in the process. And then gave us credit for everything good he did. All the righteousness he ever did. Right? That's the glory of the gospel. And that's how we can look at his precepts and rejoice. Though I've not kept any of them completely. And have transgressed them all. My faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteous one. Fulfilled them perfectly. I can rejoice over that. And my prayer is this morning that you can as well. Let's pray.